You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I am Coach Jen in Ocala, Florida. And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kemp, Texas. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for February 1st, episode 3356. Good morning, Horse World. What is your favorite day of the week? You never stop learning. You never stop understanding. It's more in depth than just riding a horse knowing that for the rest of my life I could work on this and, and I'll never stop learning. Well, our topic today in the first part of our show is going to be chicken camp, which you attended in the great Northwest. Was it cold during chicken camp? It wasn't too bad at all. It was actually pretty mild like it is here. It was in the um, 40s and 50s. They were worried about snow coming, but uh, we didn't, we we got out before any of that. There we go. Well, our guest today, Ann Boggs, or Lynn, Ann, I got Ann on the brain. Linda Boggs was one of the, I'm going to call her instructors at Chicken Camp. So she's going to talk to us a little bit later in the show all about what Chicken Camp does and why, and some of the crazy, strange, and interesting things that she has experienced using positive reinforcement training on a variety of species. Huh. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's crazy what kind of animals you can train when you're using positive reinforcement training. All right. So, positive reinforcement training, Chicken Camp. For those who have not yet guessed, it's called chicken camp because you work with chickens. So how many people attended chicken camp? How many, how many attendees? We had like, uh, let's see, me was Tick Maynard and his brother and their friend from England. And then we had a local trainer uh, named Sammy. So that was five. And then we had um, Elsa Sinclair and her. So we had seven people. Seven people, so seven chickens. Were all the chickens the same breed of chicken, or was there an assortment? No, it was a mixed bag. Um, so normally, what I've told is they like to use uh, leghorn chickens because they're sort of like the border collies of the chicken world. They're very forward chickens, and so they catch on real quick because they're like, you know, one, go, go, go. Um, so we had one or two of those in the group, and then we had a bunch of red chickens that they told me at first they thought they were red leghorns. I don't think they were. They seemed like a different breed. And I am not well-versed enough in chickens to know what kind. So, yeah, we had a couple of red chickens. We had some of the leghorns, and then we had some chickens that were like kind of grayish, real pretty colors. Can't remember what breed. So, so you had a variety of, of chickens. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Now they were all hens. Is that right? Yes. They were all hens. That's good because as we know, roosters aren't fun. <laughs> Can you imagine training a rooster? Oh my gosh. So tell us about your hen in particular. 
So the the chicken that I drew first um, was actually a chicken that knew a bunch of stuff already, and they were going to use her as a demo chicken. So I had to switch, and I got a chicken that didn't hadn't been trained for really any behaviors. All the chickens knew a little something, um, so they were at least savvy to. Uh, this is what the click means. And when you hear the click, you're going to get food. Mine was a little bit greener than that. But she ended up being a very good and obedient chicken. Becoming <laughs> an obedient chicken. Oh, my gosh. So the the chickens have to be handled because you pick your chicken up and you put your chicken on this big table to do the tasks you're trying to teach it. So I'm guessing then that all of the chickens are used to being handled and being picked up and put down a lot is no big deal to them. Yes. And actually that ties into one of the questions that I had about the camp is where do these chickens come from and where do they go after? Because like, you know, I, I like eating chicken as much as the next person, but I, I, I was going to have, you don't want to, chick- you don't want to eat a chicken that, you know, yeah. yeah like I was going to have an issue if we like bonded with this chicken for a week and then it went on a truck and ended up in a bucket somewhere. And, and uh, so no, yeah. not the case for these chickens. They are raised by a lovely family in the area and the little girls in the family, they handle the chickens and make sure that they're used to people and they take very good care of them. And that's, you know, they go back um, when it's all said and done. So the chickens, so they're like a free range farm flock. Yes. Yes. Not com- like completely free range because obviously I'm sure they have issues with um, birds. So yeah. Predators. Um, but yes, yeah, they're live, they live on a lovely small farm up in the area. And, um, so they, they have been handled. They know how to be held. And, um, we did make sure the first lessons that we did get the chicken acclimated to the table and we did have lessons in. So we each had our own chicken, but, uh, we partnered with someone because, while one person's training the chicken, you have the other person that is there to make sure the chicken doesn't randomly decide to jump off the table. Um, and that person, your partner is there, they're your coach. And so that person is in charge of going and getting your chicken, putting it on the table, picking up the chicken when the timer is done, uh, sweeping any extra food that falls on the table, that kind of stuff. So it's all very controlled. You, and then we get a pen wrangler for your chicken. We did. We did. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it was like. And, um, yeah. And then, you know, that, that pen wrangler would also give you tips on, oh, make sure you're feeding the chicken this way. And we did have protocols in place in case a chicken flew off the table. And so, so people didn't panic and everyone trying to run after a scared chicken. Uh, so anybody who's ever tried to catch a scared chicken understands why protocol needs to be in place. Yes. Yes. Uh, so we had, but luckily that didn't happen. All the chickens were pros. They knew where the food was coming and there's no reason to jump off the table when you're getting fed on the table. Oh my gosh. That's funny. So it's you. So you are paired with a pen wrangler, but then the pen wrangler is also someone who has their own chicken and you switch roles, right? Yes. Yes. So, and the chickens, so we would do like, we would warm up. You have to warm up your chicken, just like a horse, you don't no. just like having them doing advanced trigonometry first thing in the morning. Um, so the first sessions would be 30 seconds. So you do 30 seconds, call time, pick up the chicken 
And then you would do another, you would do three 30 second sessions in a row. And then you would put that chicken up and then you'd switch and you'd go get your partner's chicken. And okay. So that was, over. that was one of the questions I had is how long do you work? How long is a session? I'm going to use my air quotes, a session with a chicken. Was it always that short or did it vary throughout the week? We did work up to a minute, but there were some cases as we're teaching our chicken to advance. Uh, there were some cases where we would let it go over a little bit because the chicken was like in the middle of doing a behavior. Um, so you want to keep it really short, you know, to obviously they have really short attention spans, but something else is the chicken would after a while get full of food. And when they're full of food, they're like, I don't want to do it anymore. So you want to keep them nice and short um, for the little chicken mind to work its best and to make sure they didn't get too full of food. That's very interesting. Yeah, the a chicken being being a chicken, I can totally see because each time it gets click and it gets a food reward, it's going to peck out one or two crumbs of something. But it doesn't take long for a chicken because their food all goes into their gullet first. And then from there, it has to go into the rest of their digestive system. And that gullet gets full very quickly. It's very small. So that would kind of make sense because the chicken would go, you know, I I can't, I don't really want to eat anymore right now. I'm kind of full. And if their gullet gets too full, it's bad for the chicken. So the chicken knows that. So, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Unlike a horse. Even if you're feeding him something that's like, oh, it's just okay. It's a hay pellet. He wants to eat all of it all the time. He doesn't want yes. to stop. <laughs> yes. But that's kind of an issue with horses. You know, they uh, they eat until their feet fall off sometimes. And so uh, <laughs> we don't want that happening. Eat, but Yes. Eat until your feet fall off. Describe a horse. It eats until its feet fall off. Yes. <laughs> pretty pretty much. <laughs> yes. Now, were there different, What what were you using for the food reward? What was that? Uh, just, uh, these little egg layer chicken crumble things. Oh, so it's just chicken so feed. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we did have, like, if you really wanted to make your chicken extremely happy, we did have some mealworms oh. as well. So like if it was a brand new behavior, maybe your chicken was having trouble kind of really getting it. You could use, uh, a, a, cause they love mealworms. So you did have what is referred to in the community as a high value reward. Yes. Yes. And obviously those chickens were familiar with what a mealworm is. Anything that's creepy crawly and still creepy crawly gets a chicken really excited for somebody who's not chicken savvy. If you have any kind of a grain or seed, the chicken goes, yeah, that's, that's cool. I'll eat that. But if it's a creepy crawly bug, the chicken goes, okay. And a mealworm is great to use because it's not going to fly or crawl away. No, these were very dead mealworms. Yeah, but you could you, still. No, he, he would, the chicken will eat any bug, but you want one that's not going to crawl away during. <laughs> exactly. And that, okay. that would have been a little much for me personally. <laughs> yeah, a little much, a little much. So, how do, for, for, for anybody who's not gone and watched the video that we posted the link to before, how did you give, give them the treats? Was it something that was in your hand? Did you put it on the table? Yeah, so we had this, it looks like a little measuring cup with a, with a handle on it. Um, and that we put, we would fill that with food. And then that actually had a clicker attached to the handle. And, you know, part, the whole reason we're doing this is to be better trainers ourselves with other animals. So part of the whole process 
other than getting the chicken to do X, Y, or Z is to learn your mechanics because that is something in quicker training, especially with horses, I think it's often overlooked. It's very important how you, when you click, how you present the food, when you take away the food, what happens in between, because there's a lot of factors. So um, we did have drills where we practice with our partner pre-chickens. So the chickens aren't out yet where you would, um, we would have uh, like our partner, we would put a little poker chip, which was part of the things that we were teaching, teaching our chickens to do on the table. And then the partner would have a pin in their hand and act like the chicken pecking the target. And then, you know, I would learn as the trainer to click at the correct time that the pin hits the target. And then we, you have to present the food in a certain way, because if you do it straight out from your body and then you bring the food straight back to your body, your chicken gets more oriented to you and not the task because they're like, oh, I know you've got the food in your hands. Ooh, and so ding, they, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, moment so, for Jen, because that's going to f- apply to a horse too, sure. Oh, yes. It's it's really important. And this is something even me, I've been training horses for like 10, 15 years with clicker training. I constantly have to go back and remind myself of the mechanics. And it seems really boring and tedious because what I really want to do is go romping through a meadow and jumping all the jumps at Liberty and all this stuff. (laughs) But doing all that complex stuff can fall apart really quick if you don't have your simple mechanics down. So that was something we really practiced. So like with the chicken, um, when we're doing our little drills, pre-chickens, the pin pecks the target and I have while I'm waiting for the chicken to do the behavior, I've got the food up at my chest and away for like, you know, real close to my body. So the chicken's not really tempted by it. And then when I bring the food in, you're supposed to arc in. So like you bring your hand out and then toward the chicken. And then once the chicken eats, you bring your hand out and back. So you're trying to not orient the chicken to you. And this is the issue my chicken had because she was more green. She was less concerned with the behavior I was trying to teach. And she's like, you have the food. And she just sit there and look at me, like, give it to me. (laughs) And so I had to really make sure when I was teaching her, like, don't, don't focus on me. You know, the food will come, but you have to do something for it. Mm -hmm. So the next question of course, is during your practice with your chicken analog, also known as your pen wrangler, she taps the poker chip. Do you click immediately the moment you hear the tap? Yes. So having a clicker in your hand or any kind of marker signal that you're using, but think about it like you were holding a camera and you've got your finger on the shutter button. And with the moment you press that button, you are capturing that moment in time. So that's why using that clicker gives you an incredible amount of precision Um, but it's also very easy to capture the wrong thing. So if my chicken goes peck and then I wait a second and then click, they might understand what I just clicked, but it's not going to be as sharp as if I clicked correctly. Or So if the chicken pecked and then the very next thing he was doing was looking at you and you were a little bit late with your click, he might say, oh, when I look at you is when I get the click. Uh Aha. Exactly. Or um, let's say um, he goes to peck. So I'm thinking he's going to peck the target, but he pecked the table instead. And I clicked. Uh Uh-oh. 
Well, I've just clicked him for pecking. And that that might not be a bad thing. At least I'm capturing him pecking. Um, and, you know, maybe then the next time I can get him to orient to the target. But, um, yeah, that's why it, part that's the whole reason for the camp is, you know, you're working through those mistakes and getting your timing. And um, other animals like dogs can connect the dots and go, oh, I know what you really meant and figure it out for us. Um, but that chicken really needs you to be on point with how you're marking that behavior. So with the different chickens, they're all, I'm guessing that they are at the same family farm. So they're all from the same flock and each chicken worked individually. You never had two chickens on a table at the same time. Correct. Okay. So the next thing is, did everybody at chicken camp have a similar level of experience with positive reinforcement training or were, were there different levels of knowledge? Um, so it was really interesting because uh, when I showed up, I didn't think the other trainers had that much experience with clicker training. And you could say that you could probably say that in that there weren't really clicker trainers. Um, but I was really impressed. Everyone had a really solid understanding of behavior and behavioral science and really out of the box thinking. So I'd say we were all pretty well matched um, as far as having already having the language to understand how to build behaviors and how to mark behaviors. Um, so people came from different walks of life, different training styles, but everyone had a really solid understanding of the science behind it. And, uh, so I learned a lot from watching other people as much as I learned from training my own chicken. That's true. And just like every other aspect of our horse life, understanding the theory, even if you understand it really well, and then actually doing it are two different Thanks. Yes. Yes. And th that um, really uh, shows up when, you know, we we would do we would switch between we do upstairs, which was the classroom area. And we're doing PowerPoint and listening to the definitions. And then you go downstairs and it's like, oh, it's a little harder to put into action than I thought, which was why we were there. We were learning. <laughs> put, um, put into action. A little harder than I thought. Always. It's always. You go to the clinic and you're so inspired, especially if you go as an auditor. Any kind of a clinic. You go as an auditor so you're not actually riding your horse. It's, oh, you're so inspired. And then you go home and you try to put this stuff into action. Three out of the five things that you took away from that clinic and that you try to actually Im implant into your program, three of the five will be, oh my God, it sounded so easy. The other two, that's at least in my experience, has been that kind of a ratio when you go home. Yes. I, I've, I've dealt with this with cult starting clinics or riding with guys who are just amazing at starting horses. I've, I've ridden with a few who the whole weekend was so magical and, and the cults were just, it was just so amazing. And we got them to do all these things. And I'm like, I figured it out. I'm the best cult starter in the world now because I went to this clinic and then I get home and promptly get bucked off. Cause I'm like, wait, I'm missing something. Exactly. That <laughs> I need to go to another time. clinic um, all the time. Yeah. I figure I'm lucky if I come home from a clinic with one new thing that I retain. 
obviously I learn much more than that, but usually my brain can handle like one concept that will keep yes. me going for a little while. Yes. And I've, I've discovered later in life again, all, all me and all of my siblings were all very late bloomers when it comes to brain power that it's the global things that you take away from clinics and seminars that have the most impact. It's not how to get your left leg on the horse for movement X, Y, or Z. It's usually the global things. Instead of get my left leg to this position during a shoulder in, it's uh, be cognizant and more aware of my balance and potty position so that my left leg can work. You know, it's, yeah. it's more those those global type concepts. But just like I suspect most people, when you when you go to a clinic, you want to take away, oh, that's how you do a shoulder in. Because it worked beautifully and throughout the clinic, they kept getting better and I was getting soft steps and my horse stayed through. And then when you go home, if you didn't really grasp the global idea, the theory that created that beautiful shoulder in where your horse stayed through, if you didn't grasp that part, it, you're not going to be able to repeat it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the beauty of this style of training, this positive reinforcement and marker training is when you understand how animals learn and how to put together a behavior, um, you can train anything you want. And there have been times when I'm clicker training something with my horse where I had never taught this behavior before. I'm not sure what the proper traditional steps to teach it are, but I could guess and I have this magic button in my hand that can mark the things that I like. So I've actually been able to go home and build my own training protocol. Um, for instance, like teaching my horse a liberty spin. I kind of, so for people who don't know, it's something you'll see Liberty trainers do where they'll give the horse a cue. The horse is completely tactless and at Liberty and the horse spins around like a reining horse really fast. And um, I kind of knew how other trainers taught it and they would use like a rider and a horse at the same time and give the cue. And, and I didn't have that available to me. So I had to come up with my own way to teach it. And so I just thought about all the things that might go into that. And then I just played with my horse and I just marked the things that I liked, ignored the things that I don't like, and bam, I was able to teach it. So if you have some concept on what you want the behavior to look like and you're really good with your timing, you can train anything you want. Oh, you just make that sound so easy. Later in the show, it's just that easy. You'll, under you'll understand why I'm saying that. <laughs> because, of course, later in the show, we'll do our listener questions. And this time, I get to have a listener question, too, in addition to some of our auditors. And if you don't know what an auditor is, you need to go to Horse Radio Network or Horses in the Morning and find the auditor button. Because they, those are our super special fans who help support Horse Radio Network and its hosts, like Mary through Patreon, and those folks get to ask questions of our hosts when we do Q&As, along with other cool perks like being in these super cool and top secret, not really, auditor's Facebook page. Ha! Ah, shameless plug! <laughs> so one more quick question, because I could quiz you all day long about chicken camp, but we need to get to our guests soon. So my last question on chicken camp 1.0 is... Um, of the things that you learned at chicken camp specifically, what are some of the things that you have already 
applied because chicken camp just ended recently already applied to your training program at home with your horses or your dogs. Yeah, I, I learned how that, like, I, it just reiterated to me how valuable it is when you're going into a training session to know where do I want to end up and then sit. And even if you just think about it for five minutes or you could sit and write it down, you know, come up with the steps. What am I going to teach first? Because most of the behaviors we want to happen with our horses aren't a very simple behavior. It's several behaviors strung together. So you have to break it down and break it down and break it down again. What What's the horse going to understand first? What can I teach first? And then, you know, once you finish that session, act like a scientist. Okay, we just worked for five minutes on this. How did it go? Do I need to repeat it or can I move on? And, you know, and, and build from there. And as long as you are marking the things you like to see, uh, to create that behavior, you're going to get there eventually. So it just kind of, like I said, re hit, reiterated how um, important it is to know where you're going when you start the session and to know how to recognize, did we do it? Did we make it? Um, it seems very simple, but sometimes we just go head first into try to train something and aren't really sure what we're asking our animal to do. Oh, yeah. It's my daily existence. Yes. <laughs> well, someone who really does know what's going on and what they're asking of their animal, whether it is a chicken or a horse, or as we will discover shortly, many others, we're going to welcome our guest. Train with top hunter, jumper, and eventing professionals anytime, anywhere with Practical Horsemen on Demand. Your membership gives you access to hundreds of how-to training videos taught by top-level hunter, jumper, equitation, and eventing pros. Exclusive interviews and lectures, slow motion demonstrations, insider access to private clinics and lessons, and step-by-step tutorials. New content is always being rolled out, so there are always new videos available on the topics important to you. Join now for just $24.99 a month and take your training to the next level with Practical Horsemen On Demand. Okay, we have with us today Linda Boggs, who was a volunteer at the chicken camp event I went to a few weeks ago. And she's also a horse trainer and a dog trainer with a lot of experience in performance horses and positive reinforcement work. Um, so just wanted to have you on to ask um, a little bit about your knowledge in that area. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the show. No, thanks. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we, we met at chicken camp a couple of weeks ago. It was so fun. It was life changing. I really enjoyed Fantastic. all of the, yeah, all of the brainstorming everyone did that weekend. Cause it was a lot of really hey, fantastic. I'm confused. Yeah. Can we start with what chicken camp is please? Yeah. Uh, some people, some people heard last month's show and they know what chicken camp is. And even if you've already heard it before, chicken camp is so amazing. I want to hear about it again. Okay. Awesome. So Linda, tell um, us what chicken camp is. Well, I can tell you, yeah, I've, I have attended it several times and it really, really helped build my skills as a positive reinforcement trainer. And basically what it is, is you train chickens. Each uh, participant is given one. The lectures really talk about marking and how you go about positive reinforcement training. And then you go downstairs and you take your chicken out and you go to town. And uh, it's surprising 
Um, they're great animals because they're not like dogs. They're not trying to please you. You've got to be really good. Your timing's got to be really good. Um, they learn very quickly. They are just a, uh, a great animal, and it's a good setup to just isolate and build your skills over a short amount of time. And this is something that I believe has started in the dog training world. And, and for the reasons that you stated, you know, it, you, you would think, well, we're learning to train dogs. Why don't we just bring our dogs and train them? And, you know, I think dogs more so than horses, even, you know, dogs want to fill in the gaps for you. If you make a mistake, they are like hardwired to want to please you and a chicken, not so much. Um, they want to know when the food is coming. And, um, and the, yeah, the attention span is really short. You have to do really short training sessions because they do get full of food, which was something I didn't think yeah. about when we started. Um, so it really makes you like, you've got to be on point with your timing. And, um, one thing that I know I really took from it is when you started a session, I had to like, really think, what do I want to happen? And sometimes mm -hmm. I think like with typical horse training, we sort of figure out what we want as we're going. Right. But yeah, yeah I think when you're um, using the tools that you use for positive reinforcement training, you, yeah, we were just talking about it before the, uh, the interview began. Um, you know, you have to know what behavior do I want? What cue am I going to put it to? How am I going to reward it? You know, how, how am I going to put these steps together? Which I think is one of the bigger challenges of the the clicker training um and you know speaking of clicker training i know that um you started more of a traditional route with the horses and doing kind of more performance horse work is that correct yeah uh-huh and you yeah, rode I, with i uh, started yeah. riding when i was gosh probably eight years old um and and that was many many years ago um, and showed horses in Western events in California, uh, moved up to Alaska and continued training and showing and things up here. Although it was uh, kind of on the side, I had a marketing consulting company as well. And, um, gosh, back in the nineties, I guess I had, when I was a kid, they had the stock horse classes that were fun to watch and they'd run them hard and pull them hard. You know, um, it wasn't anything that really interested me in doing it but then from a distance I watched reining just become a little bit more of an art form and uh, so decided I want to learn more about that and I started out by going down and and working with Al Dunning for several years on that sort of stuff so um yeah I got into reining and rain cow horse uh-huh um and so at some point along the way you made the switch to um uh more of the positive um, side of things with the horses. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what brought that on and what that journey was like? Yeah, there were kind of two things. Um, I I was showing and stuff. I was flying back and forth. There was a lot of fun for a while, but it wasn't something that I wanted to necessarily do long term. And I was also getting a little um, just discouraged by how hard people were on horses sometimes. Um, I remember Al used to say that when he died, he wanted to come back as one of my horses because I just would never want to get after him like he wanted me to get after him. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then at the same time, I was 
I had a dog that was kind of a problem dog and started going to a lot of classes with her and learned more about positive reinforcement and saw how well it worked and what I could accomplish with it and how much they loved doing it. And it finally just kind of dawned on me that I want to come up with some sort of a training that my horses get as excited to do it as my dogs do. And so that's what kind of sent me down the uh, positive reinforcement track. I had also seen uh, at one point Cavallo when it traveled the States and saw Frederick Pignon um, doing some fabulous things with horses that obviously um, just looked a lot different than anything I'd seen before. And so that intrigued me as well. So I just figured, okay, it's time to kind of do a different path here and see where we come up. And that actually brings me to my next question. You know, nowadays we're starting to see the the positive reinforcement training take more of a hold in the mainstream horse world. And there are a lot of resources and trainers who are teaching people how to do this. Um, when you started, I assume there wasn't a whole lot of uh, a lot of those resources around. Did you have anyone um, specifically in the horse world that you went to learn this, or did you have to kind of take what you were learning in the dogs and adopt it for the horses? Or a little it? bit of both. Yeah, I actually did go back a couple of times to France and worked with Frederick Pignon. Um, he is not positive reinforcement, but uh, certainly, you know, not harsh or anything too. So that was kind of fun just to see that side of things. Um, I learned a lot with the dogs. I think I took a couple of online courses, but um, it was more just learning with the dogs and kind of trying things out and, and uh, you know, just seeing what worked. And I think there is a lot of overlap, obviously, in the protocols between the dogs and the horses. You can certainly take a lot of the, you know, the structure on how to build a behavior. Sure and adapt it for the horses. Um, so one of the questions that I had when I first started learning how to do this, and it's something that I see often come up in discourse on Facebook, which curse and a blessing that Facebook yeah. um, <laughs> is I will see trainers give their take on what their interpretation of positive reinforcement is and one of the criticisms that I see a lot is oh well they're they're just doing it for food my my training is is a bond we've bonded together but what you're doing yeah it's okay it's cute but they're only doing it because you're giving them food and and the the kind of gist of it is like it's somehow not as genuine and that yeah you're just bribing the horse or you know you take the food away and it's just all going to fall apart or it's going to create more problems um what are your thoughts about working with food and horses and some of those ideas that have been kind of thrown out there oh gosh <laughs> <laughs> that was a loaded question you know i think with traditional training you take the bridle and the spurs off and you know, you'll be back to the same thing. Um, it, so much of the, you know, traditional training, you always have the the negative reinforcement or punishment or the tools in place to where they're always a threat. So I, I think it's hard to compare those two. Um, I think you can just be a whole lot more precise with the positive reinforcement and it gives you a way to communicate um, with precision, basically. Um, and I think you can train more things 
using it than you can say just with relationship and things like that. It just depends on what your goals are. And, and I think the bottom line for me is, are, are you training in a way that is not inducing fear or discomfort in the animal? And if you're doing that, great, you know, however you're doing it. I think that's really kind of the bottom line. And and those are my thoughts exactly. I think no matter what quadrant you're really living in with training, whether it's positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, then you have your positive and negative punishment. I think um, it is about communication. I think each section of that of that kind of like training quadrant does have its um, pros and cons or challenges sure. mm-hmm. and things that you know are made easier. Um, and I think what a lot of people are seeing when they look at the positive reinforcement stuff, uh, from an outsider is one, you're going to see a lot of people that have, you know, are beginners and are still learning. Um, and you're going to, um, see things that can happen when you do introduce food because it it is so powerful a tool. It creates such a desire in your horse. And you have to learn how to harness that in a very safe way. Yeah. You know, the same with using any kind of training tool. And and uh, you touched on something that when people kind of talk in terms of the bonds that they have with their horse, which is something we all want. And sure. I think we can all attain with our horse. But, yeah, I'll see people say, oh, you know, what we have is just a bond. I'm like, okay, take a, like you said, take away the halter. I'm going to take away yeah. my my special stick that I use or flag or whatever, I'm going to take away the round pin panels mm-hmm. um, and the stall and, and any barrier. And yeah. would your horse still come up to you and work with you without those right. things? And for some people, the answer is yes. Some people have yeah. developed such an advanced relationship with their horse. Um, but I think some people sort of gloss over that the things that they're using to create that bond with their horse, it's a tool. Um, and it's usually most tools are pretty neutral and it depends on who's wielding it on whether it's a good right. tool or a bad tool. And it's the same with food. You know, I also use a halter and I use whips and I use those things to help me communicate with my horse and I use food and a marker signal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the end result, as long as you're, you know, being ethical and you're considering your horse, um, I don't think that one should take precedent or the other one is more genuine and one is less genuine um so that's something that i i find myself squabbling on facebook when i sure (laughs) when i work the horse can always leave there's always hay in his stall in fact i try and work i I try and pull him out when he i know he's full um versus hungry i've got a little mini that's had laminitis so i have to restrict his food um and so they can always leave, they can always go, but they prefer to come and engage. And I'm not feeding anything different than what they have hanging in the hay bag. Um, so, I, you know, I know with birds, there a lot of time they would restrict food and some people will do it with dogs and stuff too. So they want them really hungry to get them to work. And that's not right. You know, I mean, you you really are just using this as kind of a way to acknowledge that you just did the right thing here have some of this but it's not going to be his meal for the day and I'm not going to wait till he's hungry to do it because then you get frustration I don't want to build that in 
Yeah, I think in very rare cases, like with a horse that maybe has had some trauma or, uh, you know, like a wild mustang that's learning to trust people, that's when I'll use like the really yummy, amazing, you're going to love this type of food. But yeah. almost immediately, I'm backing it down to, you know, those what we call the low value food, which is I use gr- Timothy grass pellets as my mm-hmm. main yeah. thing because yeah they if you are always feeding them like the super expensive molasses oat treats sure you know, for horse, yeah. that's just insane <laughs> yeah and it's not and, good for them either yeah it's just kind of an acknowledgement a token that yeah that was it good yeah and i and i think what uh you probably experienced and i know i've experienced and once you get past that kind of initial stage of training where it's like click treat click treat click treat and you start building into the more advanced stuff um one of the coolest things i've ever seen is when then the behavior becomes the reinforcement like they just Mm -hmm. like to do it by virtue i just like i really like to do this thing yeah yeah, and um, it, that's been paired with reinforcement so much that, yeah, like you said, it becomes self-reinforcing. There's a lot of things that we um, do with the dogs that, you know, little behaviors that you can throw in in an obedience pattern that, you know, they've just done so many times it can kind of help pick them up again. Um, but, no, that's fun when they do that. Yeah, And you can and train it, secondary reinforces. You can, you know, you you can train things like that specifically kind of with a plan that where you pair it enough with the reinforcement and then you let it become kind of a marker it can wear out quickly but it can save you too at times yeah and that's something that I didn't really start discovering till I really got into positive reinforcement a lot of the beginning stuff is you training one behavior and you're going to click every time you see that behavior and you're going to reward every time you click. And that's, that's sort of like the baseline. That's just getting mm-hmm. you started and teaching the horse, the language. Um, and then we get into really cool things. And we did this actually with our chickens in the camp um, where you chain. And I know dog trainers, it's really big in the dog world is you start chaining behaviors together mm-hmm. Um can you explain a little bit about what that looks like when you do maybe two or three behaviors in a row? Yeah, well, chaining behaviors. I did a uh, put together a uh, something for the International Liberty Horse Association a couple of years ago in their their um, obstacle course, and they don't allow positive reinforcement in on the course. You can carry your whips, but you can't have food. <laughs> so I have to chain everything. <laughs> Um, and basically what you do with that is you, you get each behavior to fluency and, and I try and explain it. You you get it to where the animal doesn't have to think about it anymore to where it's almost just a reaction to the cue. Um, if they're still having to think through what they're supposed to do next, you're going to get into trouble. Um, so you get each behavior to fluency and then you start grouping a few of them together and reinforcing at the end. And, and you always make sure that the last behaviors are the strongest. So as they're going through, it's actually getting easier and easier and easier for them. Um, and then you can set it up to where you end up uh, able to just reinforce at the end. But it, it's kind of like one of the things that my training has evolved at lately is I I really work hard to reward the effort. Oftentimes, if I'm not getting what I want, it's because I haven't set it up clearly or I've asked too much. 
And and if the horse is putting out a good effort, then I'm going to reward it. I'm, I might not reward the thing he's doing right then, but I'll give him a super simple behavior that he can do and win quickly while I get myself out of the mess I was just in, rethink it again. And so, you know, kind of the same thing. If I'm going to chain behaviors, I want there to not be a whole lot of effort in that whole chain. So they have to all be fluent to where the horse is just going, oh, got this, got this, got this, got this, got this, you know, all the way through. So it's it's an art um, and it's not necessarily easy, but when it all comes together, it's really a lot of fun. I think that's like one of the most rewarding things about training in this style is when you're putting all the little bitty tiny steps together, it mm-hmm. can seem really tedious. Like it's going to take me a year to get this done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels that way because you're micro shaping. You're not just, for instance, I want to get my horse on the trailer. That sounds like one behavior, but it could be thousands. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so you might have to break it down to, can we just walk around the parking lot while the trailer's there? And yeah. again, it can feel real tedious. Like this is never going to happen. But then all of a sudden it's almost like a switch flips and you have this like really complex, perfect thing that flows together. And then it's, it's there forever. Like it just sticks so well. Well, and one of the fun things too, is when you've built it up in little pieces and, and segments kind of, it, if anything starts falling apart, uh, you, you can go fix that. You've got something to go back to. It's, it's like the whole thing hasn't fallen apart. You can go back to, okay, what's he reacting to? Where are we having issues? Let's go work on that. Pull that piece out. And then we go put it all back together again when that piece is working great. And it, the whole thing should work great. I mean, it's similar. Um, you know, Les and I produced a Cow Horse U program years ago. And we had the five easy pieces in there, which are kind of, you know, the bend, the shoulders, all of this sort of stuff. And if any maneuver is not working, you can identify what part is not doing its part in this maneuver and how do I go fix that and then come back and put it all together. It's the same thing with the positive reinforcement. You've got all those pieces. You can pull something out. You can work on it, put it back together, and off you go. And I think that's, you know, that carries across any style of training. Um, I think it's more... um, focused on in the positive reinforcement, because oftentimes you are taking out a lot of the tools you might typically use to get a behavior. So you mm-hmm. really have to break it down and make it bite-sized and understandable. But you got to do it for positive. Yeah. Yeah. On the traditional side of things, it also helps. And I think probably two of the biggest things that I've taken from the positive side and used in just my everyday horse training is, um, If it's not working, break it down. If it's still not working, break it down again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be like tiny paper thin slivers of behavior. Um, And at some point it'll start making sense to the horse and then you can start putting it back together. Um, So I think that's a, a really big one. And then the other one that just really sticks in my mind, no matter what kind of training I'm doing is um, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. Sure. <laughs> um, so like if I, if I'm asking for the left lead and I don't know if my horse is going to give me the left or the right lead, then I don't ask the question. I'll walk my horse around and around and around. And, and, uh, Buck Brandman said this at a clinic once he said, um, 
you know, we were talking about getting leads, correct leads on Colts that didn't have a lot of body control. We weren't able mm-hmm. to push their hip up here and move their shoulder there. Right. So he said, you need, you guys need to figure out what lead you're on in the trot and what lead you're on in the walk. Now, technically those gates don't have leads, right. but as you're walking around, you can feel like if I asked right now, I think he would get the left lead. So like I'll use, th- I'll set up things to where you're a little barn sour. I'll use that. So let's, let's ride away from the barn. And then as we turn toward the barn, I know your shoulder's going to be right there mm-hmm. to where when I ask you pick it up. And it seems like it's cheating, but if I asked you a thousand times to where I set it up like that and you always give me the right answer because I knew what your answer was going to be, right. then we've only succeeded. And then pretty soon I can start asking that question anywhere I want. And that horse has been successful so many times, they're going to give mm-hmm. me that answer. Well, and and really thinking about what it is that I actually want you know, what, what movement is, it's like what I did with that candor departure, what, what's really the first movement that I'm after. And that's for him to reach deep with that inside leg. And so I put that on cue. And then I had the canter departure. So it's, it's thinking back about what, what little micro movement does this horse need to do in order to execute that? And how can I set that up? And uh, these these are the things that we like will keep any horse trainer up late at night. Like how can we make that work better tomorrow? And it's one of those things where you just, I'll probably be 97 and like, I've almost got it figured out. Um, <laughs> um, my last, one last question is, um, you know, I know you came from a performance horse background um, and that's something that I'm also very interested in. I still very much love to compete. Do you think someone could build a, a train, a top performance horse, like using more of the positive reinforcement side of training? I think so. I mean, I don't see why not, honestly. Um, it's just a matter of coming up with the protocols and, um, and putting it together, but I, I haven't found anything they can't learn if, if I can figure out a way to explain it to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there exactly. you go. <laughs> so the challenge is, I mean, that's the thing with positive reinforcement, the challenge is really on you um, to come up with a way to ask for it, but but is it something they can do? Uh, if they If it's something they could do on their own, then we can train it. And I don't think anything we ask for in performance are not things that horses are not capable of doing without us in some situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, we see them, I see them lead change in nature. I see them collect sure. themselves and um, you know, I see rollbacks and you know, I don't see them backing a hundred feet on their own, but they do know how to back up and yeah, I think that is the challenge is getting it captured and on cue and making sure that both of you are having a fun time doing it. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of the, you know, I think cueing is so important too, and it's so emphasized in the positive reinforcement. But um, I think that's another thing that a lot of trainers could take from that is you've got this behavior, turn it over to the horse, put it on a cue and let them be in charge of doing it instead of micromanaging them all the time. That's that's something that I think any trainer could benefit from thinking about more. Yeah. I totally agree. And and I think that's where you start crossing into 
advanced horsemanship. I think sure. when they're babies, you know, we do need to help them out a lot. Now we still want to release and, and, you know, let them, uh, you know, not hold on to them all the time, but we are doing lots of asks in a row. And then there comes a part, you know, I know in the Western horse that like a, the ideal finished Western horse is a horse that almost looks like he's just reading your mind. And I think yeah. at some point you have to give them that responsibility mm-hmm. um, of, of, you know, being capable on their own, listening to the cue, doing it, you know, without you having to like hold on to them the whole time. Right. I have yeah, a question before we let really, you go. Though. I think you can you can get to that. You should be able to get to that finished product either direction. It's just a matter of kind of figuring it out. It it reminds me a little bit. I remember I, I come from a marketing background, and I remember sitting at a conference, you know, when apps had just come out and everything, and and the guy made the comment. He goes, you know, nobody here has more than an associate's degree in apps because they haven't been here that long. Um, and I kind of have the same thoughts with the positive reinforcement. I, I don't see it happening, but that doesn't mean I don't think it can. And I don't, and I think it will. And I think what you'll see in the horse world too, is just what you've seen in the dog world is those dogs that are trained with positive reinforcement are just brighter and happier. And, you know, they just exude love for what they're doing versus the ones that are trained under compulsion. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And it is still kind of brand new in the horses yeah. can, in, in the scheme of things horse training yeah <laughs> I have a question before we let you go though uh yeah Linda because I didn't get to attend chicken camp okay and when Mary okay. explained what chicken camp was of course it had never even occurred to me that the specific the species that you're training it makes a difference what that species hardwiring is, where they follow on the, I'm going to use it, the traditional intelligence scale. Sure. Um, when you first start working, because you've worked with dogs, you've worked with chickens, you've worked with horses. Have you worked yeah. with other species too? Um, Not as well. Some. Tell me some. I'm curious. Oh, goats. Goats. I've got a pair of ravens that I'm working with. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ravens. How cool. They're so wild. You- You've worked with lots and lots of different species, and they're very different. It's not, yeah. it, it's not like you've worked with dogs and wolves. Very similar. You've worked well, with lots of different things. <laughs> when you first start working with these different species, is the initial work with the animal where you teach the animal that what the clicker means, is that universal? Does that always look the same? Pretty much, Yeah. Yeah, because you're just kind of getting the hard wire in there that that sound means reinforcement is coming or that sound means you did the right thing. And it's kind of like when you go to Las Vegas and you're at the slot machine and then you you see those three things line up. Um, that's the same kind of dopamine release you're trying to get in the animals to where they hear that sound and it just is automatically associated with a good feeling. So is again, again, I'm, I'm the positive reinforcement noob here. Mary is the one who actually understands all this. The only positive reinforcement training I've ever done is with a horse. Well, a little bit with a dog, but with a horse essentially. Mm -hmm. And that started with teaching him a target. Is that always something that has to happen when using positive reinforcement? Does there always have to be a target? 
No, but it, it's a it's a great tool to start with because you can expand that in a lot of different ways. So it's a it's a really good primary tool. I mean, I use it for the dogs. I use it for the horses because um, once you have that, you can get their nose to touch things. They're, you can use it as a foot target to send them mm-hmm. places and things like that. So it's a great foundation behavior. So it's a little bit like lunging lessons when you first learn to ride. It's just a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it gives you, it's a tool that you'll use other places a lot. So it's a good mm-hmm. foundation tool. Cool. Well, chicken camp. Oh my gosh, chicken camp. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and spending a few minutes with us and telling us all about chicken camp and how. You know, another thing works. I wanted to throw out with the chicken camp is that one of the neat things about it is that if everybody came like with their dogs or with their horses, every horse would be at a different level. And the fun thing about chicken camp is everybody starts at the same place. Um, you have these animals that can you can confine pretty well. You know, it's not like goats or sheep or something like that. They can go in their little crates. And when that chicken goes on the table, everybody's pretty much at uh, uh, the same place. And that's one of the things that makes it neat for the program. And I think also it can bring to the fore because we as horse trainers, we invariably leave holes and gaps in our horses training as they mm-hmm. move up the ladder. Sure. And if everybody starts without starts out with the same blank slate, any gaps that you've got in your skill set, which you've of course put onto your horse, they're going to show up immediately. So it's not a case of I'm not getting my left lead canter because me and my horse never figured out how to uh, stay, keep from falling onto our left shoulder on a turn. Mm-hmm. That's irrelevant because everybody has to go through every step. Right. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Cause that could, so that could be really at a global level, very, very enlightening for any trainer at any level to be able to, spot those gaps in their in their education as far as training behaviors because hello horseback riding is nothing more than training behaviors right well and and for looking for those gaps i know like with my own horses it's especially before it would be a matter of take the bit off throw a you know do the same maneuvers in a halter or a neck rope or something like that and see where i have trouble because wherever i have trouble there means it's something that i i missed or or I was I let the tools um, pick it up for me, um, and it wasn't complete. So you know it's fun to just kind of take those tools away once in a while and see what you got. Yeah, well, pretty cool, great find, Mary. Thanks for going to Chick Camp. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun, and and as far as everybody with an even start, it's kind of like the roads of the horse type thing where they all get those colts and and. Uh, you know, have to go to town with them. It's the same thing with the chickens. Everybody starts at an even level and gets to work together. So that's fun with that program. For first-time horse owners and new riders, finding the information and support you need can be challenging. That's why Equine Network has partnered with Sentinel and Absorbing to bring you My New Horse. From important horsekeeping information and how-to videos to social media communities, exclusive experiences, and more, My New Horse is your one-stop shop for riders of all levels and disciplines looking for easy-to-understand horse care information and guidance. Start your horse ownership journey today. Visit MyNewHorse.com.
gosh, that now my head's bursting. My head is bursting after chatting with Linda for a little bit. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make you talk for a little while longer, Mary, because we do our auditor questions. I mentioned earlier in the show how you get to ask questions by being an auditor. And you chose just a few for today. What are we going to start with? Um, let's start with, since we're on the positive reinforcement train, um, a question from Jen, and it is balancing positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement training. Uh, she says she has a very oh, confident. Stop there. Stop there. Let's explain very briefly the difference between positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, because it can be confusing. Yes. Okay. The difference between positive and negative reinforcement, um, contrary to what some may believe or what it sounds like, it's not good versus bad. It's think of it as in math terms. So with positive reinforcement, I am adding something to the equation, positive, adding to the equation to let the horse know what you did was good. You should do that again. With negative reinforcement, I am taking something away. So negative minus sign. Uh, so negative reinforcement is something that most horse people are familiar with because it's pretty much the backbone of traditional training. So you might have heard it used as a term of release of pressure. So when the horse does the thing, I release to let him know he's done a good job. So an example of this might be I'm trying to soften him to the bridle. So I pick up contact with my reins. That's the pressure. The horse goes, hmm, I feel pressure. I'm going to soften into this pressure. And then when he does that, I release with my hands to tell the horse, good job. You did really great. So that's most horse training right there. Positive reinforcement. Again, I'm going to add something. So let's say I do that whole thing again. I ask my horse to soften and then I release the pressure when he softens. There's my negative reinforcement. And then I scratch him on the neck in his very favorite spot to let him know. That was really good. I'm adding a reward to that whole equation. So when someone says, oh, I only use positive reinforcement training, I honestly, I call BS on it because I don't think it's possible to live in a world with your horse where you're not using some sort of negative reinforcement. If I'm walking with my horse along a path and I all of a sudden turn left, my horse is going to feel pressure on his halter and go, hmm. How do I get rid of that pressure? I'm going to follow my owner. Ah, now yeah, we're going to pause gone. right there and we'll have this discussion on a different show. We could talk about that. Yeah, I show. could go on. I could but go the, there for the difference. <laughs> and there is positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment. They're different things. All four of those are different things. So don't negative, negative reinforcement is not the same as positive punishment. Exactly. You try to eat grass, I kick you. That's positive yeah. punishment. You add something to create certain to behaviors. So behavior. different conversation yeah. all together. So yes. now we we'll get to Jen's show. question. Yeah. So Jen's question is about balancing those two different types of reinforcement. And her issue that she's having, she says, uh, I have a very confident filly who offers what she feels is the correct behavior. And it's typically something that I rewarded yesterday. So, and she offers it before it's asked for, like offering a lope departure before we warmed up or a leg yield at the spot I asked yesterday. And she wants tips on how to say thanks, love the enthusiasm, but not yet without dampening her enthusiasm. 
Um, she's so happy to show me what she learned and wants to keep that going. And that's pretty typical when you're using positive reinforcement is the horse is like, man, I really liked what happened when I did that lobe departure. So I'm going to do tons of lobe departures and hope I get tons of food. So there are several ways to, um, to work with this. Um, one is you want to make sure once you have captured a behavior successfully, you want to make sure you put it on cue. You want to be very clear in what's the cue I'm going to use, and I'm only going to reward when it is on cue. Um, so I, in the case of like your lobe departures, for instance, really think about what cue am I doing um, for me, I simply lay my outside leg on, I take my inside leg off, and I kiss. That is the cue for lope, nothing else. Um, so I want to make sure I'm always rewarding it when it's on cue. And then let's say I'm walking along and they go and they pop into that lope departure. I, for the most part, ignore it. I will gently guide them back down to a walk and then just continue my walk. And they might do it three or four or five times. And each time I go, no, thank you. You know, I just, I gently draw my reins, bring them back to walk and then continue walking. And it might take some time. Um, but usually if you're very good at only rewarding on cue, they will learn to only offer it when it is cued. Um, so that's that's the simple way to fix it. And if it is something that I cannot easily ignore, I will redirect and say, why don't we do this instead? And then I can reward for that. Um, so the, it's pretty much as, as simple as that is to make sure you know what your cue is. Once um, once you've captured the behavior, then it's time to put it on cue and say it is you only get rewarded when it is on cue um, and then ignore everything else within reason. You can again, you can also redirect when they are not um, uh, like if she's continuing to lope off, if she's yeah. just loping and loping, loping, just redirect yeah. and say, hey, why don't you give me a nice backup instead? Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is when I first train a behavior, I do want it to be kind of routine and predictable in a pattern so that it's easier for the horse to offer it again and again and again. Um, but when my horse and no matter what kind of training I'm doing, this will happen. The horse gets used to the routine and then they, you know, they walk by a gate and want to side pass to the gate or, you, you know, they, they're trying to give the behavior um where they think you're going to ask for it. So then I will become a very unpredictable trainer. And I'll say this ride, we're not going to lope at all. Or um, like I know she asked about the leg yield. Um, I will completely throw it, throw that leg yield in anywhere. So I'll start being unpredictable and unstructured with where I ask for it to where I'm keeping that horse guessing. So he's like, huh, I really don't know where she's going to ask for this. I guess I better listen to what she's saying. Yeah. And that's interesting. There's a, there's a name for it in training and teaching science, but for example, if you, if you have a behavior that you can use that the horse also likes to do that will make it less likely or impossible to do the thing. So if there's a particular place that horse wants to offer a leg yield and you can anticipate that 
if you're doing something that the horse is going, I'm not going to try to leg yield while I'm doing this in that place. For example, if he wants to leg yield and you're actually making a circle the opposite direction, he's not going to try to offer it. Yeah. And there's a there's a name for that type of behavior, and I don't forget I know, what it and is. I can't remember. And I can't remember what it is. So if your if your horse wants to put his head down because you've taught that cue, asking him to do something that he wants to keep his head up, he's not going to put his head down. So that's one of the things that can be really really useful. And something that I have found useful for Nigel in particular is I try to make sure, because he tends to get a little bit amped up when he's doing his R-plus training because he goes, oh, I'm so excited to get a train. And it's usually behaviors that he enjoys doing that I use it for because I use it as a confidence-building tool for him. I make sure that he's been a, been offered the opportunity to physically get all warmed up, and I'm going to say tired out, but he's not tired out, but to get that mental and emotional energy out Give him opportunities to do that. So I might go out and long line him. I might take him out and go for a really long walk in the woods. Walking in the arena does not have the same effect, so that's not going to be what we do. But it might be that your filly could benefit from those things. I never take him out and put him on the end of a lunge line and let him run around like an idiot and blow off steam. It's not the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Giving him the opportunity to warm up his body and take a deep breath a couple of times and relax and go, I'm ready to think about it. And those, but combining those two techniques might really go a long way for your filly to help be more focused when it is time to do the focus and, and that kind of thing. And I'll add one more thing to that. If you feel like when you're using the positive reinforcement training, your horse is kind of like real frenetic in their energy and they're just offering tricks, offering, 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 and they just feel really electric. You may want to consider um, lowering the value of your rewards. So like if I was giving my horse really expensive tractor supply treats with all the oats and the molasses and stuff, um, maybe we go and change to grass pellets. So it is still something that they find rewarding, but not something that just makes their brain go crazy. Um, So things like that, it will also kind of help bring down that like really explosive offering behaviors. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that can be hard for a horse who is incredibly food motivated, like our Hackney Pony Scooter, for example. Sometimes, because he does get, oh, I need it now, I need it now, I need it now. And what he tends to do, and he he obsesses and becomes completely obsessed with a single behavior, his favorite behavior. And that's all he'll do. He just repeats it again and again. It's like an OCD or almost as if he were uh, autistic. He can't do anything else. He gets all inside of himself that way. I will have to reduce the re- the reward to a scratch on his withers or I can even reduce it to a little a couple of blades of grass that I pick out, which is less effective right now cuz he's got grass, but for a horse who lives on a dry lot, a couple of blades of grass. Woohoo! Exciting stuff. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's amazing how low value you have to get sometimes. But then you have to have a couple of high reward ones tucked off to the side so that when you transition into something that you go, oh, yeah, I need to reward that now. You have that available. And that goes back to the mechanics we talked about earlier in the show. Have those mechanics worked out because it's amazing how uh, fumble-fingered I get when I'm doing this work. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, I just yeah. dropped all the treats on the ground. <laughs> exactly. Yes. 
it's it's one of those things where it's just that simple and just that hard. Just that simple and just that great, great stuff. Who else do we have a question from? Uh, we have one from Robin who says that Corinne, and I'm not familiar with the, this discussion in the auditor group, so I don't know who Corinne is, but I would Cor- say that. Corinne is her daughter. Okay. I figured that might be the case. Yep. Uh, so she has trouble keeping their horse in a consistent canner, and she's worried she will not be able to canner the 20-meter circles in her upcoming dressage test. Um so that's typically um, something that I experience when I'm starting colts, um, especially uh, your horses that maybe they're learning, you know, you're conditioning to build up the muscle to be able to do this beautiful collected canner for a long period of time. Um, that can be really difficult for some horses. And um, what I have learned to do in this case is you know, in your mind, you might be thinking, I want to canter a 20 meter circle because that's obviously upcoming in your test. But for some horses, that's quite a lot of cantering. So what I will work on first is, can we get to canter? Can we get to the canter? How easy is it for me to get to the canter? Oftentimes, if I'm working with someone who says, I can't keep my horse in the canter, and I tell them to ask their horse to canter. It takes a monumental effort to even get to the canter. So if that's a problem, that's what we have to work on. And then sometimes with that same horse, that same horse has difficulty getting into the trot and getting into the walk. So sometimes we have to start all the way back at the beginning and say, can, can you walk? Can you do a big, beautiful, extended walk without me having to prod you the whole time? Um, I find many horses that have difficulty keeping a canner also have difficulty giving me a quality walk. So uh, be mindful of that when you're working with your horse and make sure those lower gates are working. It should be easy. It should be like driving a sports car versus a VW bug that needs some transmission work. Um, I should be able to go through those lower gears smoothly and easily without having to poke and prod at my horse. So if I feel any of that in the lower gates, that's where I go. Let's say your walk's great, your trot's great, and you're trying to work on your canner. So I will work on maybe trot to canner transitions to start. And I want it to be very, like I said, I want that horse to just flow into that canner. If I ask them from the trot to canner and they give me that pogo stick, big old trot, 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 canner, I'm going to keep going, trot, canner, canner, trot, trot, canner, canner, trot, over and over and over again until that smooths out. Once I have that going for me, I oh, will do... Stop there for a second. Don't lose your train of thought okay. because I've I've experienced this. And what tends to happen, and this is very, very common at those um, introductory levels in dressage in that... The horse can canter a 20-meter circle. The horse can trot a 20-meter circle. But it's that in-between part, getting between the two gates. And if you start with a crappy canter, you're going to have a crappy canter throughout. Exactly. So, so, and for some horses, the crappy canter cannot be maintained. But after Mary's finished, there is the opposite side of that equation. Go. Yes. So, yeah, once once I have trot to canter, canter trot all working then I will do it from the walk and in order to go from a walk to a canter they really have to drive with that hind end so that's something I want to practice to help condition my horse um 
And the other thing I want to add in, and this is something that some dressage riders have a challenge with. I do this on a loose rein. I'm talking loose rein. Um, when I am thinking about having a collected canner, uh, that's, there's gotta be a lot of things working, um, to, in order to get that horse in a collected canner, their back has to be lifted. They have to be driving from the hind end. Their shoulder needs lifted. They need to have softness in that head and neck and jaw. And um, if you are trying to collect your horse and then get them into the canner, to me, that's advanced. Um, so until I can get this gate ironed out, loose rein, you can have you know, is short enough rein to direct and control your horse, but I don't want hardly any pressure on his mouth while he's cantering. He needs to learn how to find his own body. And then we can start putting all the pieces together to get some collection. But especially going in, going from a collected walk to a collected canter is very, to me, like I said, it's, it's pretty difficult. It'd be like asking me to hold a plank for a minute. I can't do it right now. I have to build to it. Um, <laughs> So all of this nice, loose rein, don't touch their face. Don't touch um, their face. Yeah. You, again, you can use your reins to direct them onto that circle and to keep them from running off. But other than that, don't try to collect them. Um, so once I get those transitions, I can go walk to canner, canner, walk, walk to canner, canner, walk. And that's all nice and smooth and effortless. Now I can start to put duration. So you can do this from a trot or a walk. And let's say I know my horse cannot hold 10 strides at the canner. So I'm going to lower my expectation. And, you know, maybe I'll start with some horses. I start with, you know, two strides. I'll go, oh, you did two strides, go back down. And then once they get that consistently, go one, two, three strides and then go back down. Then one, two, three, four strides, back down. One, two, three, four, five strides. And you see where I'm going with this. And then, you know, pretty soon you get a quarter circle, a half a circle, a whole circle. And when your horse succeeds, let's say you get that 10 strides in a row for the first time without having to kick and prod at your horse, when they make it, especially if they give you a big effort like that, I'm going to break them all the way down and let them sit and soak. And this is also something it's not commonly practiced in the English world as far as I'm aware of, oh my gosh, you gave me 10 strides in a row. Let's take a nice break. Let's not continue to canter. You just gave me a big effort. So let's just sit here and loose rein. I'm going to play on my Facebook and you just kind of go on screensaver for a bit have a little rest. Throw Maybe we'll saver. walk. Yeah. <laughs> like just, I don't, when I, when I give my horse a little break during a ride and I put my hand down loose rein, my horse knows I'm not going to fuss with them for a minute. You know, they can just stand and soak, just soak in all the good energy and relax. Um, and that's very important with a horse that has trouble with things that require energy and effort is they really need to just sit and soak for a moment. Physically, they need to recover for just a little bit. Mentally, they need to recover for just a little bit. And they need to know that if they try, I'm going to repay them. Um, in some cases, let's say I've had horses that like, oh, my God, even cantering one stride. It's just not going to happen. And then when I get that first canter stride, I get off. I pull that saddle off and I say, see ya. I don't care if I've only been on him for five minutes. You gave me a big effort. 
we don't need to do any more today. We'll come back tomorrow and start again. And you're, it's like you're putting, you're depositing money in that bank of goodwill between you and your horse. Like you give me an effort, I give you a release, I give you a reward. Um, so build from there one stride, then one, two strides, then one, two, three strides, then one, two, three, four strides until I can canter several 20 meter circles easily without having to kick and poke and prod my horse. Then I can start thinking of doing things like getting inside bend and getting some softness. When you add the softness, this is the last thing I'll, I'll add to the question, to the to my answer. When you start thinking of adding softness and collection, I do it from a downward transition first. So I'm cantering on a loose rein, and in order to slow my horse down, I will pick up the reins and collect them into the walk or the trot. And so I'll pick up on the reins, wait for them to break down into the gate I want, and then I will continue to hold the contact until they soften. Then I go back to loose rein. So you're doing collection into the downward transitions first. That is easier for the horse than trying to get them to collect upwards. So once I get that going pretty good, then I will, as I'm cantering, start to ask for softness. So I'm cantering on a loose rein. I'm going to pick up and collect them a little bit for a few strides and then release and then collect for a few strides and then release. Once I get that going pretty good and then they can maintain the collection on the circle in the canter. Then I will start thinking about collecting them at the walk and pushing into the canner, if that makes sense. That makes absolute sense. That makes absolute sense. All, all good advice. Absolutely. All good advice. It's, um, and by changing criteria, reducing criteria, if, if the horse struggles with a canter, the gate is one criteria. The forwardness of the of the gate is another criteria. The horse's balance. In other words, is he long and low? Is he... Um, through is he on light context? Is he through? That's a third criteria. So by reducing the criteria, you give your horse the more chances of success. So that's exactly. that's one of the parts. And another part that I always focus on after many, many, many years of teaching many, many, many students, and I would get this comment all the time. I would have student A working in the arena and student B watching. And student B would say, what did you see? What was the horse doing that made you tell the rider to do that? Or why did you tell the rider to do that? And I said, well, I told the rider to do that because I saw the horse doing something. I saw the horse struggling to maintain the canter. So that told me that the rider was do doing or not doing A or B. And that's why the horse wasn't carrying the canter. So. For a rider who is riding on a horse who is at this level of its training, and I'm a little bit familiar with with Joey because Joey's been around on the on the auditor's Facebook page for many years since the beginning of his career. Um, we know that Joey enjoys cross country. Joey has no trouble at all galloping. And his gallop, mm. his gallop is at a training level gallop. He's not galloping like a three-day event horse or a Kentucky Derby winner. He's galumping along. It, it, the gallop that Mother Nature gave him. No trouble mm -hmm. at all with that. So I would suggest to rider Corinne, when you're doing your flat work, when you're doing dressage, keep yourself in a cross-country mindset. I'm cantering towards a cross-country fence, not towards X. 
And what that's going to yeah. help do is going to help your body ride him more forward. I could spend an entire month's worth of riding lessons telling you to where to put your heels, where do you put your knees, where do you put your hips, whether or not to soften through your shoulders and all those things. But riding in a galloping forward cross-country mindset will do all those things in one fell swoop. So when you're doing your canter work, sit up tall and say, I'm cantering forward towards a jump, not towards X. And when you're doing that, you're also not focusing on criteria. You're not focusing on whether or not he's bending to the left or the right. You're not focusing on whether he's on the bit. Because when riders who are in conscious competence, riders who have to think about where they're putting all their body parts, what happens is their brain becomes overwhelmed. They're trying to think of so many body parts. After a while, it all becomes muddy. And that affects the horse, especially a thoroughbred. He doesn't want to gallop forward and correctly or in a frame if the rider's body is he is what he calls interfering with him. I learned all these things the hard way, by the way. So use that to your advantage. And the second thing I would encourage you to do is if you practice your test, not everybody in when they do dressage tests practices the whole test all in sequence. Some people practice it in parts. Some people don't practice it at all. So... I encourage people to practice this kind of a thing. If you have to trot down the long side to the left, pick up canter at C. Um, pick up the canter at the short side. But until your horse will consistently carry that canter through one 20-meter circle until you say otherwise, don't ever do one single 20-meter circle. Ask for the canter and uh, keep cantering as long as you feel that canter has is, is got its mojo. But as soon as you feel the mojo starting to go away, ask for the downward transition and start over. Don't ever canter, 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 canter. Keep kicking until it falls apart completely. Because that just teaches the horse to fall apart. And that, that goes back to what Mary said about canter trot canter walk canter and lots and lots of transitions and if it means doing a straight line do a straight line but try that first thing first and see if that makes a difference straight away and before your competition where you're under pressure to go oh my god i gotta do a 20 meter circle decide what your criteria are going to be beforehand before you start that test probably the day before the week before Am I going to sacrifice everything in order to keep cantering? In other words, if I need to stand up in my stirrups, grab a chunk of mane, and click at him to keep the canter so that he keeps cantering happily, make that decision. Because you're going to get penalty points like crazy, but you're going to keep the canter. Or is your criterion going to be, I'm only going to canter as long as he stays balanced and on the circle? Well, then if you get three quarters of the way around the circle, you start feel it falling apart. You're going to have to say to Joey, oh, come back to a trot. You're going to get penalty points like crazy, but decide what those criteria are going to be for the day. End of lecture. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. I love doing this. <laughs> I, right? I can talk. I can talk about teaching riders without having to get cold. <laughs> yeah. Only I can solve my own training problems. I'm really good at other people. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so much. But. It, it does give us the opportunity to re-examine what we're doing. And that was something I enjoyed when I taught a lot was like, oh, I could take that away for me. Huh, interesting. Because it, it helps you think outside the box a little bit. 
It does. It does. Yeah. It does make your brain work. It does make your brain work. And now it's my turn for my listener question. I'm part of the auditors group too. And it's about duration for a behavior. Uh, One of Scooter's favorite things is his target. And we use the target a lot for him because it's something that Glenn can do. It's a behavior that Glenn can use is target. What I struggle with with him is the fine line between touch the target, click and get a reward. He understands that. He does, I have trouble with him staying on the target, adding duration. Because what will tend to happen is he'll stay and then he'll leave and I won't click because I don't want him to leave. And then he'll he'll go back to the target and I won't click him because I don't want to just stay there. And then he loses interest. Yeah, that's no fun. So mm-hmm. what am I doing wrong? <laughs> okay. So the behavior you're wanting to get is for him to stay with his nose on the target for yes. a set amount of time. Correct? Yes. Okay. Um, so this is something that I will use a lesson that I learned from Alex Curlin. She calls it 300 pet pigeon. And the gist of why it's called 300 pet pigeon is Um, and it's been a while since I've read this, uh, read this excerpt from her book, but, um, so I think they did some sort of animal behavioral science test with pigeons where they were trying to get a pigeon to peck a target. And they wanted to see how many times can I get this pigeon to peck this target in a row, uh, for one click and reward. So, you know, obviously we can get them to touch it once and we could probably get them to touch it one, two times, and maybe one, two, three times, but what's, what's the extent and, you know, what's, what's the limit of that? And they found the number to be 300. They could get a pigeon to sit and peck a target, one, two, three, four, five, up to 300 for a single click and treat. And I don't know why they were doing this. I don't know what kind of uh, science this was, but it, it's just always stuck in my head as a way to build duration in your behaviors because like we were talking about with the last question we know we could probably get this horse to canter but a whole 20 meter circle is a prolonged amount of time how do we get it all to happen without the horse breaking down and this is the the foundation of training any behavior um so what i where i put this um practice to like literal use is in my ground tie. I'm wanting not simply for my horse to put, I used a mat and I taught my horse to put his front feet on the mat. And I didn't want him to just put his feet on the mat and then walk off after two seconds because then the behavior is useless. Um, And the horse I first taught it to was a young rambunctious colt. So standing still for him was like, "Ah, I don't want to. So outside of hobbling him or tying him up, He was not going to want to stand for very long. Uh, So I was very methodical about it. I knew first I would say with him is I would make an educated guess. How long do I think he can stand there and touch that target before he gets bored and walks off? Maybe it's five seconds. That might even be pretty generous. So if I know after five seconds, he's going to leave. I have my baseline for where to start. so I did this with my ground tie horse. I He knew how to put his front feet on the mat. And I knew that he would stand for a few moments before getting bored and walking off. So I knew probably five seconds. So I started with three seconds. Um, so I 
put them on the mat and I, and I added a cue that meant we are doing this now. So I would, uh, my cue for him was I'd run my hand along his face and say, whoa. And that became the cue for we're doing ground time now. So I'd start putting a cue for your target. So you could say touch, you could say target, whatever you want. That is a clear signal to your horse. This is the thing we're doing. And your job is going to be continue to do this until I release you from it. So I'd have a cue to touch the target and I'd have a release cue. Some people use the click as a release. Like once you hear the click, the behavior is over. It's totally up to you. I'd just be consistent with it. So I would, I did this with Guthrie, put his feet on the mat. I'd say, whoa. And I counted one, two, three. If he stayed on the mat, click and treat. I also came up with some ground rules ahead of time. What behavior am I going to allow that will still get a click and treat? So this was in the middle of summer when I did this with Guthrie and he's a very itchy horse. He doesn't like flies. So sometimes he would stomp his feet on the mat. I was like, that's fine. Or he would scratch his legs with his face. As long as you sit down the mat, fine. You do not have to be a statue. I also allowed him to correct himself. If he took his foot on the mat and immediately put it back on, that is also allowed. What I do not allow or what I will not reward is him just leaving the mat. So, you know, have some ground rules. Like, let's say he moves his head away from the target, but then goes right back to the target. You may decide that's acceptable. I will accept that. So once you have those ground rules established, I counted my three seconds. Click treat. Now that he does three seconds, the new rule is four seconds. So. After I clicked and treat, I would then give the cue again to signal we're starting the behavior. This is new behavior. We're starting it over again. And then I counted one, two, three, four. If he stayed still, click and treat. Now that you've done four, I know we can move on. So then I go one, two, three, four, five, click treat. Give the cue again. One, two, three, four, five, six, click treat. Um, I got him up to... I, my goal was 300, but I only ever got up to like 186 seconds. Um, actually, I was using steps instead of seconds. So like I would walk around as we did this, um, but I would count my steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. And I got up to 186 before I kind of met, went on to other things. Because if he could stand there for 186 steps, that's a long time. That's a really solid behavior at that point. Um so that's what I would do with him. And let's say we're going, you know, we built up to nine steps, now 10 steps, now 11 steps, now 12 steps, now 15 steps. And one of those times, let's say our goal is to make it to 15. And at 13, he leaves. What do I do? Do I punish him? No, I put him back. I go, went and grabbed him. He had a halter on and I led him back to the mat and I gave the cue to stand again. He did not get a reward for going back to the mat. So I'm not going to reward you leaving and coming back. So I would just, so no reward because you did not make it to 15. I put him back on the mat, gave him the cue to stand still, which is the woe cue. And I'd start again. And it might take several times of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Oh no, he left. Put him back, do it again. Put him back, do it again. Put him back, do it again. Once we make the 15, I might jackpot it. Like, oh my God, you finally did it. Um, and now that we're at 15, we can move on. And after, you know, the very beginning steps of this, he left a lot and I 
correct a lot. And but then once he figured out the name of the game, he knew he just had to wait long enough. And you're building their mental stamina and patience by doing this. If it was just totally falling apart, I would lower my goal and say, okay, let's start back at let's let's go back to 10. And if we can do 10, then you know, so I wasn't afraid to backtrack if it just wasn't working. So this is that is what I would probably do with scooter is I would take him to the target. I would give a cue, meaning we're doing target time now and count for one second, click treat. And then one, two seconds, click treat. One, two, three seconds, click treat. It seems very tedious, but if you go and, and I did not try to get all 300 seconds in one go. I worked on this every day for many days. <laughs> Because that's a so, lot. Yeah. So far, I think I've gotten up to three seconds. Yeah. And, so and that's that's, as, that's as far as I've gotten so far. And I have to figure out because what he tends to do, and this is because I'm not very good at this. He see he knows I have the treats, right? So he's mm-hmm. hello, and he keeps looking at me, going, "Excuse me, I'm touching." And then he goes back and he touches, and he looks at me, "Excuse me, I'm touching." And then he goes back to touch. So three seconds is about as long as I've gotten him. I'm wondering if. I need to finesse how the treat gets to his face because that that made a bell go off in my head when we talked earlier about with the chickens, you had to make sure that you didn't, the treat didn't go directly from your, you know, directly out from yes. your body. And I'm going, I'm wondering if one of the things I can do with him, and I've, I've seen people do this with R plus training for an animal, for example, a wild animal that you don't want to feed directly from your hand. Um, just use a, a a cube that I can just click, drop it on the floor near the target so that he doesn't quite keep looking at me going, where's the food? Okay. Yes. So I would even take this back even further. Um, one, okay, I have a question. Are you practicing some sort of exercise where you're standing by him and he needs to keep his head straight or away from you? Um, that's, have you done and that's that something else he's he's taught me. One of the first things we taught him, because he can be pushy and mouthy, is you can't have a treat if you're looking at me. If you if you're mugging me, there's no food. Sorry, see you later. So what he will do is he, he will come to your, uh, your into your proximity, two or three feet away from you, and he'll make sure he makes eye contact with you. He's very good at that. And then he swings his head away, and then he looks at you again. And he swings his head away, and he looks at you again. Mm-hmm. So he understands that mugging is not good, but what he tends to do is he tends to fall back on movement. He wants to demand the cookie and he keeps yes. trying different behaviors to demand the cookie. Okay. <laughs> so this is probably the most common pitfall in this type of training. And I it is into it. <laughs> like we talked about in Linda's interview, you know, you will see people get on Facebook and go, it makes some cookie monsters. Don't ever feed your horse. And they are right to an extent. Yes, you can create some very bad behaviors by using food and training because it is so powerful. So what I'm picking up is I, and this is something that I had to go through as well. When I first started clicker training, I knew how to get my horse to do the very simple behaviors like targeting and stuff. And I knew enough to know, okay, let's work on If you're looking at me or trying to dig in my pockets, you're not going to get a treat and you're only going to get rewarded when you turn your head away or you keep your head straight. And I did that enough to where I was like, okay, you understand it. And then I immediately tried to go into bigger and better and funner behaviors. 
Um, and it would all fall apart. They'd go back to being a cookie monster again. And I'm like, well, dang it, we worked on that already. And it actually was enough when I first started clicker training to make me stop clicker training because it brought all sorts of stuff out in my horse. I was like, I don't like this. This is not good. Um, so it was, it would actually make me completely stop clicker training. And then I'd always come back to it. So it finally took me breaking down and going back to the basics and like hyper focusing on the basic behavior of standing in quietness next to my horse and rewarding just quietness and actually picking what do I want you to do when I'm standing next to you? Do I want your head down? Do I want it turned all the way away? Do I want your head straight? How, where do I want you standing in relation to my body? Do I want our shoulders even? And it, it seems it was boring to me at first. I was like, this is lame. I want to do liberty. But I, I made myself commit to this. And I tell you what, the things that it opened up with my horses was like another level. Like it created this amazing relationship with my horse of just this oneness and quietness. And if you get that part really good, you have such a foundation to do some amazing things. So what I would recommend to you, uh, you could still work with the targeting and stuff like that, but I would go back to this standing next to your horse in quietness and get that really good. And the the person that I always talk about her on the show, and she's got this really good book, I think it's called Modern Horse Training. And, and this is where I, I would tell you to like read these chapters in this book. Um, it's Alex Curlin who wrote the book. And she calls the exercise grownups are talking, which I think is very clever because it's like if you have little kids and you're talking to your adult friends and having a conversation and your kids are pulling on your pant leg going, mom, mom, look what I can do. And you're like, shh, grownups are talking, which means you're responsible for yourself and you're not going to bother me. And she actually has a, a cue of sorts. So Um, I do this with all of my horses. Once they understand what the click means and how to target and all that, the next exercise I do is this grownups are talking and I stand next to my horse with my hands clasped in front of me. And that is going to become a default cue. When I go to that stance, my horse knows grownups are talking and they go to that quietness. And it can be a little hard to teach at first with a very rambunctious horse, but you will see this crazy change in their brain when you really work on this and build the duration in this behavior that horse will just like be that you will just create this peace and quietness and if you and that will become my cue of uh so i built what's called a training loop out of this behavior so like let's say i'm training my horse to walk alongside me i start in grown-ups are talking which tells my horse it's like wiping the canvas clean it's like okay we're in training mode and we're starting with quietness. And uh, I have already really worked on that and built duration where I can stand next to you for many seconds at a time and you're just in quietness. And then I go from that to, okay, now let's walk forward and I'll go and walk with my horse forward a few steps. And then when I go back to grownups, I stop my feet, I clasp my hands in front, the horse goes back to quietness. And if you can start and end every behavior in that peace and quietness, it makes, yeah. So I would, uh, I have tried shoving this book down everyone's throats. Like you have to read this book. And the, the sessions on her, her sections on loop training and this grownups are talking. Don't skip it to do the fun stuff. 
Don't be like me with my ADHD. <laughs> it's just friend. like everything else. You have to go through training level and wear the boring old yeah. black jacket before you get to Grand Prix and get to wear the tails. It's just it's the way. It's not it is. good enough that your horse knows to throw his head to the side to get a treat because as soon as you start adding more complexity in your training and bigger, more energetic behaviors, they'll go right back to that cookie monster brain of where's the cookies and looking at you. And so, so, okay, that's one part of it. I'm going to add another part. I could talk about this for four hours because I'm very passionate about this. Well, let's keep it up. The next part of clicker training. Yeah. We're going to, we're getting a little long. So why don't we oh, okay. for next time? Right. Yes. Down. Remind me. Yes. Remind me to um, the next training tip uh, will be for next month is feed for position. Feed for position. Because that's going to also help you. Got it. Feed for position. Got it. Write it down. Feed for position. Because I will immediately forget after this show's over. <laughs> well, that's fabulous. We, are, we have plum run out of time. So once again, thanks for hanging out. If you want to be one of Mary's quiz masters, you need to go to Horse Radio Network or Horses in the Morning and look for Horses in the Morning's auditor link. It's always floating around there somewhere. I'm not going to say where it's at because it changes every few years and you might be listening to this show in 2028. But that's how you do it. And you also get to be part of the super secret, but not really, uh, HRN Auditor's Facebook page. And once again, thanks a bunch for hanging out with me today, Mary. All right. Thanks for having me. 